I very much just wanted to do two things. I wanted to humanize the face of the Cape Colored woman and the things we go through. I only see us as either very broken from bad things, a whole life of badness, or the, the comic relief in certain stories. I really wanted to, to show the human side of it, the multi-layered side of it, and I did want it to sound Cape Town. So I just, I wrote it like I would have said it to somebody. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Open Book Podcast series, where we bring you fascinating and important conversations prompted by local literature. I'm Fasti Karlitz, and I'll be listening to these conversations with you. Today, we bring you a bonus episode. Every year at Open Book, a highlight of the program is conversations with Mohale. It's usually a packed event where we put three incredible women on stage with Mohale Mishekho, who is a versatile storyteller and all-round literary personality. The conversation tends to be about feminist issues, and today's conversation is about women in lockdown. Due to technical difficulties and busy schedules, we couldn't bring all three guests on at once for conversations with Mohale, so this is part two, a one-on-one conversation between Mohale and Shayna Fife. Shayna is the author of the memoir, Ochat, which is a brutally honest and powerful account of surviving sexual violence and depression and ultimately escaping a cycle of abuse. If you missed part one of the conversation, which was with Pumla Ola and Supakazi Jonas, do go listen to that as well so that you get the full Conversations with Mahale experience. Here's Shayna and Mahale's conversation. Welcome to Conversations with Mohale Part 2 because I cannot be stopped. I will not be stopped. So I thought, let me do this again since we can't do it in person and I know how much you miss me. And I am with Shayna. Um, how are you, Shayna? I am well, Mohale. How are you doing? I am good. It's a bit of a circus right now because my neighbor's having their pool redone. And that means that we're all suffering with noise. Otherwise, I'm good. So... <laughs> Let's jump into this. Um, The question that I've started asking since, you know, the pandemic happened is why? Why did you write this book? I think I wanted to reach women who didn't read my blog initially, who may be experiencing the same things that I did before. I knew for a long time that we have a abuse problem, particularly for me on the Cape Flats, but of course in South Africa as a whole. But whenever I write to do something, it's just from my perspective as a colored woman growing up on the Cape Flats. And I knew that there was a massive issue that wasn't being addressed and just merely blogging about it. I felt like I was, I was you know, trying to do my part, but it wasn't enough. And when, when um, Amy Carlson approached me from Jonathan Ball about going bigger, I knew that it was the time. Yeah. And that was before lockdown happened, though. Lockdown was coincidental. As much as it was terrible because lockdown was terrible, it did give me time to focus and, and you know, actually sit down and write the book I'd been thinking about for a while. So would you say, because I think... I'm using lockdown as an excuse for why my second novel hasn't come out. Ha, ha, ha. I hope my publisher isn't going to listen to this. <laughs> but do you think writing the book in lockdown affected it in a good way or a bad way? I think both. I think that because my trauma stems from abuse, 
and what I wrote about stems from abuse and being isolated, that lockdown was very triggering. Mm. It it sort of made the book, it made it easier to access the emotions I needed to, to speak about the things I needed to. But it also, it's hard to explain. I know you asked how it affected the book and not me, but I am Ohat. Ohat is me, you know, it's a part of myself. It made it both easier to let these things go and more difficult to get through it. Yeah, because you talk, you talk about it in the book near the end about mm. how lockdown affected you. So yes. I'm trying to avoid spoilers, but I mean, you can, <laughs> you can talk about it if you want. It made it, it made, it forced me to sit down and face it. You know, sometimes if you have something to do like a book or a blog or, or, or a creative thing, you find every other thing yeah. that you can do, clean the kitchen, clean the house, spring clean, paint the roof, all the things that you can find so that you can avoid that thing. Yeah. And all I had was that thing that needed to be done. So so lockdown really it gave me the time to just sit and do it. And it did put me in the proper headspace. I don't know what the book would have been like had I had to fit it into our normal lives with like pre being shut down in the house. Yeah, going to work, looking after the kids, mm. blah, blah, blah. I No, I hear you completely. But you know what I found interesting, what I always find interesting when people write about themselves is, were you not worried about how your family members would react to your very, very, you are very honest. Like, I think this is why I could never write a memoir because I'll be like, yo, now I have to, I have to tell the truth about this very specific thing. Were you worried about how your, your family members would react to your brutal honesty? No, because part of, of what I've been doing for the last couple of years was writing very truthfully about myself. Somebody else asked me this the other day in a personal capacity, and they thought it was very funny when I said, I think people with self-respect care what other people think. But <laughs> I, <laughs> I've been whittled down at, at one point in my life. I'm doing okay now, you know, the, the healing process and whatever. Mm-hmm. But I got to a point in my life where everybody thought I was trashy anyway. Trash, I hate that word, but I'm just using it in this context now. That... It didn't matter. There was no place but up. No matter what I said about myself, people had been saying it about me. So I sort of took ownership of that. And now I feel like I like I own my own truth. And whether it's uncomfortable for my family or my friends or other people or not, it's still, it remains the truth. <laughs> whether I say it or not, you know, whether it's out there or not, it's still my truth. Yeah, that, that's true. And I sort of want to normalize truth in my own space. We, look, I only reach the people around us and people taking note of us, right? And in that in that circle, I'd really like to make honest communication a thing. I think we always want to be professional. We want to be proper because our church people are watching. We want this or that. We all and then none of those interactions are actually sincere. I like sincere interactions, even if they're awkward. You know, you talk about your reach as the people around you. And when I when I read Ohat, by the way, saying that word <laughs> for me, I was like, oh, I'm gonna have to say Ohat on 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 the podcast. <laughs> when I when I read the book, it was very, very clear who you wrote the book for, you know, because you didn't have moments of explaining. I think you did a, a lot to explain certain cultural things, but certainly when when the, there are parts where I'm like, oh, I know who this is written for. You didn't try to over-explain language, over-explain, you know, experiences. And I could tell that you were, well, at least how I viewed it is you were writing it for a young woman 
who comes from where you come from and who may have been in the same positions as you. Is that true? Yes. Yes, it is. I, I very much want to, as much as it's also for, for all the women um, mm. who have been there, sometimes it's healing to just relate, you know, to know that the last 10 years weren't just in your head. Mm. But it's very much for that young girl at school who needs guidance. I like to think it's for a pre-pregnant Shana. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy, but in my head, I was writing to my, my younger self. <laughs> no, I'm so glad you spoke about pre-pregnant because while I was reading this book, I suddenly asked myself, where did I learn sex education from? I mean, of course, there's that thing that you learn at school that they show you the inside of the bodies, you know, but I was, I was struggling to understand who taught me about sex, because if I remember properly, I had my period and all my mother said to me was, you can no longer be naked around family members and you will get pregnant. That's all she said to me. She never said, this is how you get pregnant. She just said, you will get pregnant. And I thought, that was very interesting. And I wanted to know, do you think you're equipped to have the talk with your kids when it's time? Yes, I do. Well, so I don't, I don't believe the talk needs to be a thing. I think that personally, I have full on open communication in my house about anything sexual, anything really. But particularly when it comes to sex, my children are already asking questions. And I try to make it as not a thing, not taboo as possible. Yeah. So Am I fully equipped? I'm not a doctor. I don't know all the ins and outs still. I'm doing my best. I do know <laughs> what experience I have. I do know the things that I should have, I wanted to know that nobody told me. Um, I also very much don't just believe in teaching the mechanics of sex. I think it's very important to teach, well, not children, young teens when they start asking questions, to normalize speaking about sex as the recreational activity that it is. I think a lot of the time the talk speaks of sex in a marriage, um, heterosexual sort of light, or and as, as something you do for your husband, or that you're not really supposed, we, we kind of hide the enjoyment part. Whereas sex is a thing that starts happening very but young. But also it's... It's not something we do to have a baby. No, exactly. The it's, it's something that's for fun. Or for whatever your reasoning is, it's not just to procreate. I'm so glad we're talking about pleasure, right? Because I do feel like in your book, I think had you when you were younger, you, you already knew the pleasure side of it, but it came with a lot of shame. And I often wonder how how shame robs us of like of perfectly normal of perfectly pleasurable you, you know experiences and I, I want you to talk about that connection that you 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 were because it seems like a theme in Ohat that that theme of pleasure versus shame so a theme throughout my life where any sort of sexual pleasure whether it's even even from liking the attention of boys Liking sexual attention, it doesn't actually have to be the act. Any sort of indication that you are interested in something sexual is shame, especially especially versus your womanhood. So, like, what type of lady <laughs> likes when men say this? You know, what type of woman has sex with several people? Um, it's it's so intense that as a married woman, 
And this is something I, I openly speak about, as I know that it can be an awkward thing. But as a married woman, I still need to get therapy for being okay with sexual pleasure. Because it's so ingrained in me that if I enjoy this, I'm doing something wrong. There's still an anxiety that happens because of how sex was shrouded yeah. for girls. I don't think that boys have the same issue. I really don't. I, I don't have evidence or proof, but I can say from what I know and the men I've encountered, my friends, my cousins, people I speak to, women, if you enjoy sex for you, it's, it doesn't seem to be, okay, other people don't like it because other people get to tell us what we can feel in our vaginas and uh -huh. time, you know. So, like, it's very much been shrouded. As a, as a teenager, I remember wanting to do the fun stuff with the other children, <laughs> wanting to, you know, experience the sexual things with the boys and the girls ever. But nobody could know because then you're bad. But everybody wanted to, but you were girl, so... It's almost as if it devalues you. And I never understood how I could be devalued by something that was fun for both people. How the boy could be okay, but if anybody found out that I was doing the same thing and play and finding pleasure in it, yeah. I was less than immediately. You know, I, I kept thinking every time I was reading this, I was like, is there a way for us to call this book what it really is? Yeah, they're calling it a memoir. But for me, it felt like a manifesto. A manifesto for girls who were in, who are in the same position you were in for a long time. Would 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 you be comfortable with calling it that? I'll call it whatever, what however people take it up, as long as it helps. That's my sincere <laughs> answer. That sounded very like Disney, but I mean that they can call it whatever, whatever works. Because I think reading Ohat for me it was. I was like, oh, well, you know, some of these experiences um, feel like it should be a sort of guide for women who question how things happen in their community, in their families, in society. But also, I think it's about it's okay to mess up. It is absolutely okay to mess up because that's part of it, right? And you say something very interesting in the book, and I'm going to paraphrase here. You say, your parents want you to stay away from boys. And then when you get to a certain age, they're like, where are the grandchildren? And you're like, how am I going to make grandchildren if I've never experienced boys? Without boys. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is the, the, the catch-22 of being a colored sort of grown-up. No, I didn't. I had babies way before. <laughs> I gave them grandchildren before they needed to ask me for anything. But yeah, I... I I never understood, like I have older cousins, I never understood how people kept asking, oh, when are you getting married, blah, blah, blah. But if they if they have boyfriends, it's, oh, she has a boyfriend. I wonder what they're doing. So what must you do? What is the proper way to conduct yourself as a, as a young adult? I can see how it can be very confusing. Honestly, like for me, Ohat was all of the questions I had as a young person as well. You know, it's girls don't stay out till late somebody's got to close the curtains and i was always like yeah the curtains is definitely just an excuse to get a girl to stay at home did you have the curtains as well or did your parents have another excuse who's going to who's going to make supper because i feel like all young women growing up have something that is the curtains i was always just told i can't go I could go nowhere. I could do nothing there was i didn't my family is quite strict my mother was quite strict i didn't get an excuse I just got to know. But I'm fully aware of the who's going to start the food situation. <laughs> it's, it's a very common situation. 
<laughs> I must admit, I, I was very surprised at how strict how strict your parents were. I thought my parents were strict, and then I was like, oh hell no! I should call them and say maybe you weren't so bad. Um, <laughs> so I think every time I finish I finish a project, writing or whatever, I feel like I'm never. I'm never the writer the project needed until I get to the end and writing, whether it's, you know, whether it's a, a comic book or, you know, a screenplay or whatever, when I get to the end of it, it's left me with some kind of lesson. And I wanted to know what, what surprising or not surprising things did you learn when you got to the end of Ohat? I learned that I was more affected by things than I allowed myself to feel when they were happening. I, um, I sort of prided myself usually on being resilient, which is apparently a, a thing women pride themselves on. We thought like, no, you were a rock. <laughs> I'm not a rock. I learned very quickly that I am not a rock. <laughs> I was so... No rocks here. Yeah. I was so emotionally scarred that, well, I didn't know how emotionally scarred I was until I'd let it all out onto paper that I got physically ill within the process of writing. And I went to the doctor and she said to me, there's nothing wrong with you. Your body's just reacting to emotion, to trauma. My, I remember my right side pulling stuff. I thought that maybe from the, all the typing and blah, blah, you know, that, that I was in pain, my muscles, whatever. Mm -hmm. She was like, there's nothing wrong. These are, this is you feeling the things that you kind of blocked out while they were happening. Because I remember not being as devastated the first time around than when I had to relive it yeah. in a safe space. It was much worse. And that's what I learned that I don't, I, as much as we teach, we should teach women strength and, you know, taking care of yourself. Strength is not something, strength doesn't mean not experiencing it and healing from it. I think that there's a, a definite disconnect between being strong and being cut off from things, emotionally cutting things off. And I think also when it was happening to you, it was fight or flight, you know, so there was yeah. no time to, to really process it. And it was an onslaught of experiences that, like you say, once you get to a safe space, then you're like, oh, whoa, this is what I was yeah. dealing with. And it all, it all sits in the body. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of the book is about body. And i I asked this question to, to Pumla and Sipogazi about lockdown, about how um, I didn't realize that I wasn't in my body. And then once the world opened up again, I realized how people react to my body and how I was living in my body. And I wanted to ask you the same thing, body. How did lockdown and then the subsequent, you know, opening up the world again, how did it affect you in your body and how you view it? I don't really know how to answer that question. I do know that I was in survival mode in lockdown. Mm. And much like you say, only after things opened up again, I realized that we had survived something. And it hit me actively. I, I, I've been very, what's the, what's the word? Not obsessed. Obsessed is a, is a strong word, but sort of preoccupied mentally mm. with the idea of death recently. Just, just my mortality, the fact that, so many people passed away. We we sort of survived that first year and a half of COVID and we didn't know what was going to happen. And I'm coming down from that still. And and what made it a little bit more real was my, my eldest son. Not my, my youngest don't really know what happened. They know we went into lockdown. We sort of made it a, a less, a less um, scary thing for them. 
Mm-hmm. But my son being like, so mom, pe- people's families are gone. Some of the kids at his school went into lockdown with a whole family and came out with, you know, four or five family members who had passed away. Yeah. So, so the idea that we could have, we could have died. <laughs> it was a real thing. Like it was a big, serious thing. I'm still, I'm still sort of processing it in my body and in my mind. The anxiety now is worse than it was in the, in the, th- in the deep throes of lockdown. Realizing now, okay, we're going back into the world is scary for me. I'm back at the office today for the first time in a couple of months. And the reality is now that we're going back to normal. It's going back. So we must just we must just go on in life. But also for me is what does normal mean after we've lost so much? Exactly. You know, that's that's something I'm still having to process. Like, yeah, sure, we can go to a restaurant, but it's not the same because you're so scared all the yeah, time. And the I'm time. I'm physically exhausted from from panic and and anxiety and fear. I'm physically exhausted. So now this is a thing that all writers hate, but I have to ask the question. What are you working on next? Because now you, you've worked on the memoir. Or is there something that you're working on in terms of, you know, in terms of fiction, nonfiction? What's next? So I don't think I'll ever do anything that's fully fiction. It's not, I'm not good at making things up. <laughs> but um, I, before I, before I don't, oh, I did actually sign with NB Publishers. Um, I was one of the fellows for the, the Jake Scherville uh, Fellowship, mm-hmm. Writing Fellowship. So I've been working on a, it's it's creative, non-fiction sort of. I am writing writing something else, but it's not memoir. It I can't say too much about it until it's like done, but it is also based on realities of the colored community, but not on gender-based violence. I, I imagine that, you know, Pumla said the same thing about uh, female fear factory she said once she was finished with that she didn't want to do any more a uh, kind of sad stuff no no more gbv she yes. reckons she's gonna stay away from that for a while and i understand because that that can be draining like you spoke about how when you were writing it finally all you know came to you all of the emotions and all of the stuff that you would have felt yes. so i i like creative i like creative nonfiction because i will say this even though ohat had really disconcerting moments your voice is so lovely thank you literally felt like i was sitting at a table pouring a glass of wine and you were sharing a story with me and i just wanted to say thank you because i think in south africa we talk a lot about gbv but we don't we don't talk about it in a way that feels like it's personal stories it's all headlines you know, it's all inquiries. And for you to have shared that for me is something special. And I, I do hope that that story finds the person who needs it. So thank you. Thank you very much for writing, Ohat. And also thank you for writing it so authentically who you are and not over explaining the mechanics of, you know, your your community, even language. It was it was so nice to I I, I was reading it out loud and I was like, yeah, this this sounds Cape Town. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad it sounded Cape Town. Yeah, it sounds and feels Cape Town. I very much just wanted to do two things. I wanted to humanize the face of the Cape colored woman and the things we go through. I very much feel like we are caric- caricature. What are, what are you? Caricatures. Yes. <laughs> That that one. <laughs> that word, that word. It's very much like that. And I, I, I feel like sometimes 
I only see us as either very broken from bad things, a whole life of badness, or mm-hmm. the comic relief in certain stories. I really wanted to show the human side of it, the multi-layered side of it, and I did want it to sound Cape Town. So I just, I wrote it like I would have said it to somebody. I, I very much, because I, I work in writing, I've been taught that English is the best, you know, like straight Queen's English is the best. And I very much don't believe that, especially not in in South Africa, where there's like 12 official languages and thousands of ways we all speak them, you know, our own mm. slang and our own dialects and all of those things. And I wanted it to seem like a sincere colored person just speaking. So I'm glad that you got that. That makes me feel very happy that that's how it came across. It did. It came across very well. So I cannot wait to read what you have next. So thank you very much, Shayna, for um, allowing me part two of uh, Mohali Speaks for Open Book as we're doing this not in person, but on a podcast. And I'm hoping that I will be able to see you soon when book festivals happen again. <laughs> I'd love it. I'd love it. This is the end of Conversations with Mahali Part 2. So glad I got to do it with Shayna. Thanks for having me. And that's it from us. Thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks to Mahali and Shayna for making time to record this. Mahali and Shayna's books are available at the Book Lounge. Thanks to Frankie Murray, who curated the series with me. And thanks to Anu Burnett, our in-house editor, who also assisted me with the production of this podcast. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture, as well as the support of the Heinrich Bull Foundation. The Heinrich Bull Foundation has been actively promoting the consolidation of democracy and human rights, advancing gender equality, and taking action to prevent the destruction of the environment in Southern Africa since 1989. The Foundation's work in Southern Africa consists of four programs. Democracy and social justice, human rights and gender justice, sustainable development, and international politics and dialogue. Until next time, this is the Open Book Podcast Series.